0: This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Good evening and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight, Somalia's lawmakers are expected to pick the country's new president on Sunday. And seven men who brutally killed a Zimbabwe national in South Africa have been granted bail by the country's court. We'll have these stories and more ahead on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Somali lawmakers are expected to pick the country's new president Sunday, May 15th. The final step in a torturous election process that has suffered delays due to violent attacks, a rift within the outgoing administration... The selection of a president is a key step in establishing a new government in that troubled country. To discuss these issues, we have in studio Mohamed Ollad from VOA Somali Service. Welcome to African News tonight, Mohamed.
1: Uh, Thank you, yes, uh, I'm very welcome.
0: Briefly, uh, explain the electoral process by which a president is elected in Somalia.
1: Uh, In Somalia, only a few thousand people voted for parliament. That would... uh, uh, represent the nation of around 16.3 million people. This is because S- Somalia uses a complex and indirect political system, and political parties do not contest elections, nor do one-person, one-vote election take place. Instead, the 275-member House of the People is chosen by the delegates appointed by clan elders and members of civil society who are uh, selected by uh, regional states officials. This time, unlike previous time, Yahayis, uh, the 54-member, upper-jumper of the Senate, representing Somalia's five regional states, will also take part in the presidential vote. Uh, Nineteen candidates are running for it. The incumbent president, former, two former presidents, prime minister, and the former Somali foreign minister, the only female candidate, Fuzia Haji Adam.
0: So as you mentioned you said uh, president mohammed abdullahi uh, among 39 candidates is competing two former presidents an ex prime minister also running and one female candidate so what do you think of the mix who do you think has a good chance of winning
1: uh, yes, if you look back the history of somali's modern elections which foreign money interventions interests and corruption are involved uh, it has always been difficult to predict who will win the election uh, of the president, if you look back, uh, the trend of the past four presidents, none of them were reelected. Was reelected, elected Somalis have a t- tendency of testing new waters when it comes presidential elections. But if you ask me, whose presidential campaign is strong and feasible among the thirty-nine candidates, I could say a bunch of the presidential hopefuls, including t- two former presidents. The incumbent president, former prime minister, and the leader of the Puntland regional state uh, are are among the frontrunners.
0: So uh, I would like to actually uh, mention here, what what is the significance of this election? Because uh, it was so delayed the feuding between President Mohammed Abdullahi Mohamed and Prime Minister Mohammed Hussein Roblé contributed to the d- delay and uh, Al-Shabaab's uh, uh, violence. So what is the significance of this election?
1: Well, yes, as you said, the election process has been dragged on for a record of more than uh, eight months. Uh, and that's why the election of president is important for Somalia now more than ever, because it's ending months of delays, at least six times of deadline pushbacks, uh, since February 2021, when incumbent President Hamal Abdullahi Mohamed's term ended without a new vote, and it would also uh, end international pressure on Somali leaders, including U.S. visa restrictions on leaders and a wa- warning by the Washington-based International Monetary Fund (IMF), which said February that Somalia's delayed legislative and presidential elections would, would put the renewal of the three-year budget support program worth nearly 400 million people at risk. If if the president if the president is not elected and government is not in place,
0: Mohammed Olad from VOA Somali Service, thank you for your input. Thank you. Religious groups and rights activists in Nigeria are calling for justice after a female Christian student was killed by a mob. "'For alleged blasphemy, the student was beaten and burned to death "'on the premises of a school in northwestern Sokoto State.' Police say two people have so far been arrested in connection with the incident at the Shehu Shagri College of Education and that others are being sought. The school has been closed indefinitely. The students accused Deborah Yakubu of making blasphemous comments about the Muslim Prophet Muhammad during an online argument with classmates. The argument took place during the Muslim Ramadan holiday, but when school resumed Thursday, a group of students Attacked Yakubu. She was flogged, stoned, and eventually burned. The Randenburg Magistrate Court in Johannesburg today granted bail to seven South African men accused of killing a Zimbabwean national. Elvis Niyati was stoned and burned to death in the Salute Township last month when a vigilante group went door-to-door looking for undocumented foreign nationals and criminals. The seven have spent three weeks behind bars. Tusokumalo Kumalo reports from Johannesburg.
2: Delivering her judgment, Magistrate Street Kasime, listed a number of reasons for her decision to overrule the state's bid to keep the seven suspects behind bars. She said a witness who had earlier positively identified five of the accused as people who participated in the alleged crime later withdrew her statement, saying she only identified them as people she knew not as the perpetrators of the alleged crime. She also said investigating officers failed to show the role each suspect allegedly played in the murder of Elvis Nyati, other than saying they were part of the mob that attacked him. She also pointed out that none of the accused was arrested at the scene. The suspects' release brought jubilation from family members who were in court. But Nyati's cousin Mpaticin Llovo, who was also in court, Told VOA that he was very disappointed. We were expecting the court uh, will take the decision that will uh, make others, even out there, to know that uh, no one has the right to just uh, take the law into their hands. But uh, anyway, there is nothing we can do. If the court saw that uh, they deserve to be outside, uh, we will just accept that. However, Plyn national prosecuting authority spokesperson said prosecutors still believe they have a strong case against the accused much of that evidence that the state has will be revealed during the trial we were uh, at the stage of the bail application and therefore there was no need for us to prove our case beyond reasonable doubt we'll get that opportunity to do so and uh, once investigations are concluded we will start uh, preparing our case as such over the past year there's been an increase in anti-immigrant attacks in south africa the country's unemployment rate tops 35 percent and many South Africans say migrants are taking jobs and cause crime. Each of the seven men was ordered to pay bail of 3,000 rents or about U.S. $186. They were ordered not to interfere with witnesses and to come back to court on the 7th of July. The prosecution had sought to bring Nyati's wife to testify at the bail hearing, but she refused, saying she feared for her life. Tusokumano for VOA News, Johannesburg.
0: Russia's invasion and attempt to annex all parts of Ukraine is perceived as an explicit effort. To redefine international norms, Russian President Vladimir Putin has made it apparent in recent years that he is ready to move on from the democratically based international order that has shaped global governance norms since the end of World War II. Joseph Siegel, director of research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shanawi what Putin's international order looks like in Africa and how that could have dangerous implications for the continent.
3: Well, at its core, Putin's view of international order is an imperialist model where larger, stronger countries are justified in seizing territory from smaller neighbors, regardless of international law regarding sovereignty and territorial integrity. And we've seen uh, Russia do this not just in Ukraine, but in Georgia and Moldova, and threatening other of its neighbors. This would be a problem in Africa, where there are many large countries that are neighboring smaller countries. And if they applied the same logic, then they could justify swallowing up uh, their smaller neighbors This would uh, undercut one of the great and underappreciated accomplishments that we've seen in Africa um, in recent decades, and that's the respect for territorial integrity. We've seen very few interstate conflicts on the continent. You know, I think another dimension of the Russian vision of an international order is that we've seen uh, as with all global actors, you know, they, they shape international norms by exporting their domestic governance model. And in Russia, you have an authoritarian governance structure where elections are controlled, you know, leading to a system where you have a president for life opposition voices are intimidated and imprisoned, protests aren't allowed, the economy is heavily controlled by an oligarchic network, and this is resulting in economic stagnation and growing disparities. And so it's a very transactional model where the laws are arbitrarily applied to serve the interest of those in power. And this type of system is a throwback to the old authoritarian models that we've seen in Africa. And as we have experienced, you know, this is been very state destabilizing wealth is concentrated in the hands of only those who are close to power and so it's very counter developmental and you know i think importantly you know this view of the international order this model of governance is contrary to the aspirations for democracy that are very strong in africa Afrobarometer polls regularly show that more than 3 quarters of africans see democracy as their preferred system of governance
0: in libya russia has deployed substantial military resources including fighter jets, serfs to air missiles and mercenaries in the attempt to install warlord Khalifa Haftar as a new strongman in the country. How was Russia's behavior in Libya a manifestation of Putin's perceived view of the international order?
3: I think it's a manifestation of Russia's you know perceived view of the international order in several ways. One is that it's trying to undermine the United Nations system. All along, Russia has been a spoiler to the efforts by the UN to establish a unified, recognized national government and it continues to do so in the present. As the UN is trying to organize elections and establish a constitution that will provide a legal authority to the new government in Libya, something that vast majority of Libyans want. It's also a manifestation in terms of how Russia is going about this. In addition to undermining the democratic process, it's overtly trying to install a new strongman, one that's beholden to Russia, specifically the warlord Khalifa Haftar, and therefore establish a foothold for Russia in North Africa and the eastern Mediterranean. And you know, it's done this by force. Russia has deployed mercenaries with the Wagner Group, as well as supplied fighter jet, uh, to air missiles, and other munitions in support of uh,
0: Haftar's uh, eastern-based militias. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa's Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA Senior Analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi. In Namibia, police have arrested an opposition party leader a day after he led a group into Windhock's Chinatown district, forcing shops to close. The Namibian newspaper reports that Michael Amushililo of the National Economic Freedom Fighters Party, NEFF, turned himself into police today. He faces charges related to Reich's uh, assembly. Social media and local news media show videos of Amushililo, the NFF commissar of economic development leading supporters through Chinatown. The raid was sparked by an announcement from the Namibia Revenue Authority saying, it has seized and burned counterfeit goods worth 5 million Namibian dollars or about 310,000 U.S. dollars. Amushililo and his supporters say that if the property of Namibians is destroyed because it is fake, then Chinatown shops must close because, they say, many of those shops sell counterfeit goods. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Wuhib in Washington, the city of Mombasa in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo has seen growing protests against the presence of the United Nations Peacekeeping Force. Since yesterday, protesters have massed near bases used by the UN force known as MONUSCO. Reporter Jafar al spoke with VOA's Kate pound today about the protests.
4: Yes, there is a problem in the city center of Mombasa territory since yesterday. Locals... Uh, arrested four vehicle of the UN forces, uh, and it's because they don't want Monisco to be in Mombasa. And this is the third time locals of Mombasa are uh, doing this grammar against Monisco since 2011. Because according to them, everywhere Monisco is based, there are a security and massacre, because Monisco do anything when, peop- when people are attacked. Since y- yesterday night, they banned many, uh, locals banned many installation of UN agencies and NGOs. This morning, uh, forces, communist forces, police and army uh, used gunfire to, to, to push civilians to go far from Morisco and now they are reporting about many arrestations and people in jail. But according to the president of the civil society of Mombasa, he say the protest still ongoing till this moment.
5: So the attack was on the UNOSCO base, and then they've been also attacking other, like aid agencies and other UN offices and vehicles. Do we have an estimate on the injuries? How many people have been hurt?
4: Yes, the president of Civil Society confirmed that they are, there are many people in jails, but they can't account them because the protest still ongoing and there are many gunshots. So he asked me to be patient till when things will be a bit and he can give me the number of injured people. But he said police use uh, guns to, to kill people.
0: That's uh, VOA's Kate Dawson speaking to reporter Jafar Al-Ketanti. The northern Ethiopian town of Lalibala, a UN World Heritage Site, just a few miles from the Tigray region's border, was a tourist hotspot before the war. Known for its rock-hewn churches, tourism came to a halt with fighting that saw the town change hands several times. For VOA, Henry Wilkins looks at its effort to recover in this report from Lalibela.
6: The rock-hewn churches of Lalibela, cut and hollowed out by hand into monolithic structures, have stood for almost 900 years, it is thought. Last year, however, the UN expressed serious concern for their future as Lalibela became a battleground in Ethiopia's civil war. During the conflict, the town changed hands at least five times, among forces from the Tigray region and the federal government and allied militias. Biene Abate is the chief receptionist at Lalibela's Top 12 Hotel. He says the hotel was ransacked and used as a field hospital by forces from the Tigray People's Liberation Front during the occupation. They were only able to reopen two weeks ago after the cleanup.
1: Yeah, the main problem is hydroelectric power, water supply, uh, even the road was not yet finished. It was co- the contract was. The Chinese people, they take all the machine, the TPLF soldier. Because of that, many tourists not coming here, just a few tourists coming by airplane.
6: It could have been worse. The hotel next door was hit by an Ethiopian government drone strike after TPLF forces occupied it, residents say. Inside that hotel, the windows have been blown out. Shattered glass covers the floor, along with other debris. The town's economy relies on Ethiopians' pilgrimages and the international tourism that has sprung up around the churches. The combined effects of COVID-19 and the conflict mean visitor numbers have plummeted in the last two years. The town is struggling to recover. There's no electricity and access to water was severely affected. Dinku Fente, who sells souvenirs to tourists outside one of Lalabella's churches, says earning a living under the TPLA was tough.
1: He says the war totally
6: froze his business, explaining that during the conflict, no one even dared to try to sell souvenirs and religious books at the market because they were too scared. The TPLF soldiers would steal any money you made anyway, so we chose to just stay away, he added. Local tour guide Ayalu Abe said his business shut down during the conflict too. Now he's finding it nearly impossible to recover.
2: But after this case and happen almost these two, three days, at least, you know, uh, just a chance to working as a tour guide. But for the last three years, nothing any else, all the things are it's blocked or it's closed. So no one is still working properly here.
6: Lazane Alundu Osomo, an official with the UN Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, says the agency plans to support the city of Lalabella
2: Our major concern is the communities who are living in the site, who are caring about the site, who are uh, caring about this uh, important World Heritage Site, to manage the site and continue uh, using it the way they have been doing since many, many centuries.
6: Asomo says a UNESCO delegation is due to visit Lalibela at the end of the month to assess the type of support that is needed. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Lalibela, Ethiopia.
3: Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.
5: The United States will send more than $200 million in additional humanitarian assistance for the Horn of Africa. The region has been wracked by conflict and is suffering the worst drought in 40 years. More than 20 million people are projected to need emergency food assistance across Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia. The additional U.S. assistance announced at the recent high-level roundtable for the Horn of Africa drought in Geneva will be sent through the U.S. Agency for International Development and the Department of State. It will address the needs of refugees, internally displaced persons, and conflict-affected populations who are dependent on agriculture and livestock. The United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs noted that the drought across the Horn of Africa comes on top of conflict in Somalia and Ethiopia, two years of pandemic-related socioeconomic stress and a prolonged desert locust crisis. The war in Ukraine has also contributed to the food shortages by driving up the prices of basic foods fuel and fertilizers. We must all step up and show the people of this region that we are here to help alleviate their suffering and that there is no place for famine in the twenty-first century, said UN Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs Martin Griffiths. The United States is the largest single-country donor of humanitarian aid in the Horn of Africa. With the additional two hundred million dollars, the United States has provided more than three hundred and sixty-one million in humanitarian assistance in the region since the beginning of fiscal year two thousand twenty-two, according to USAID. The money will be used to support the United Nations and non-governmental organization partners, and will help provide emergency food and nutrition assistance, care and medical supplies, access to To safe water, sanitation, and hygiene support, and livelihood support to diversify household income sources and help keep livestock healthy. In a statement announcing the additional assistance, State Department spokesperson Ned Price noted the worsening humanitarian crisis in the region immediate, full, safe, and unhindered access for humanitarian organizations and workers is essential to provide timely, need-based assistance to those affected by the drought and the ongoing conflict, and to save lives, he declared. We welcome the contributions of other donors towards this crisis response and urge others to generously support the immediate humanitarian needs created and exacerbated by this historic drought.
0: (laughs) That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehia Suhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barro, and our engineer, Patrick Dea, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.